0: Just curious, um, raise your hand if you are currently or have previously served as a missionary in in the traditional sense. A lot of people in this room. Today today we celebrate World Mission Sunday. Um, It is coming to the end of the season of Epiphany, but the church has set apart this uh, day to celebrate uh, God's mission to the world. Uh, That includes... Um, Jerusalem, Charlotte, Judea, Mecklenburg County, and to the ends of the earth. So now let me ask you again, who has um, served as a missionary in the world? Yeah, all your hands go up. Um, But we do want to remember and honor those who are currently or have in the past served uh, at home or abroad as missionaries, because I know this church has been blessed with a lot of people in that category. Um, We're going to talk about mission today in some different ways, and we're going to apply a lot of it locally, um, but I want you to also apply it in your minds and to your various contexts and remember uh, the wider mission to the far ends of the earth. Would you pray with me? Father, we do thank you for this day where we remember that you had the whole world in mind when you came in a little strip of land by the Mediterranean and did and said the things that you did and said. Bless you, Lord, that through your church it has spread out over the generations, over oceans, over jungles, that the word of Christ may be known and loved and received all over this planet. Pray that as we reflect on some text this morning that you might stir by your Holy Spirit in us That we might continue to be about that work wherever we find ourselves, for we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. We're in the season of Epiphany, we're coming to the end of it. Uh, Epiphany begins, of course, with the wise men uh, visiting Jesus when he was a young person in Bethlehem, and that is representative of the, the nations coming to the light of Jesus, He is a light for the nations, but as Epiphany goes on, and we've been seeing this in some of our gospel texts and other texts we've been looking at, it really is about the church now playing that role of going out to the nations and sharing the light of Jesus that all might come to worship Him. The collect that I prayed at the beginning of our service went like this, Uh, give us grace, O Lord, to answer readily the call of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and proclaim to all people the good news of His salvation that we and the whole world may perceive the glory of his marvelous works, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. I want you to notice, though, how that prayer begins. Give us grace, O Lord. Answering Jesus' call to proclaim his gospel to the whole world is not easy. We need help. We need encouragement. We need wisdom. We need guidance. Simply put, we need grace. And grace here is being used not as God's forgiveness, but as His presence and His strength that will empower us to fulfill His call. This morning, we're going to look at the Gospel text, Matthew chapter 9. It's a very significant text, and if you studied Matthew, uh, you'll know this. It's a transition point. It's right at the end of chapter 9, but for these first several chapters, the disciples have been watching Jesus do ministry. We have this long chunk called the Sermon on the Mount where they watched him teach this powerful sermon, and then we have in chapters 8 and 9 just miracle after miracle, and so they're watching Jesus do that. But then we come to chapter 9 at the end, and there's a transition. All of a sudden, it's like he's saying, hey, you've been watching me do it, but now you're going to begin to do it. That's what's going to happen in our text today. But in it, I think that we see the grace that we need to carry out this ministry of the gospel, wherever we find ourselves, the ends of the earth, as well as our own neighborhoods, schools, or relationships that God has given us. I think there are four graces that we see that I want to highlight for us in this text. First, is the grace of imaginations captured by the kingdom of God. The grace of imaginations captured by the kingdom of God. Second, the grace of hearts filled with compassion. Third, the grace of seeing the Lord and his harvest. And fourth, the grace of souls moved to pray for laborers. So if you brought your Bibles with you, open them to Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 through 38, and we will look at these four things. First, the grace of an imagination captured by the kingdom. Text begins in verse 35. It says, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. See, at the core of Jesus' ministry was this kingdom of God. Matthew, he calls it the kingdom of heaven. Same thing. Verse 35 says that he proclaimed the gospel or the good news of the kingdom. Jesus' entire ministry in the gospels is about the kingdom. That's what his teaching was about, his preaching as well as his miracles. It's what drove him. He was this man on a mission, and his mission was the kingdom of God. There's an urgency to it. We hear this come out in Luke chapter 4. where He's going around these different places, but he says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. The kingdom of God was Jesus' urgent and passionate calling. He wanted to announce it in word and in deed to the world. But what did it mean to him? What did he think the kingdom of God and the gospel of the kingdom was? Well, as you study his teaching and his parables and his miracles and then the explanation that he gives of those miracles, it's very clear that Jesus believed that in him and in his ministry the sovereign holy God of Israel, the one known as Yahweh to the Jews, the same God who was the creator of all that was, seen and unseen, that God was entering history in Jesus. And through that, there was a reversal in the story of Israel and the story of the whole world. You see, he understand this announcement of the kingdom as something that was very good news. God was becoming king again. And not in some distant way, but through a human being, through Jesus himself, God was establishing his reign on earth. Well, why was that good news? Because when God came as king and reigned through his Messiah, Jesus, things were going to be put right again. Humpty Dumpty that had fallen off the wall and all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Well, that's true, but Jesus the king could put Humpty Dumpty back together again. That's what we see happening in the Gospels. That's what his miracles are showing us. They're not some neat tricks to wow people. They are signs that the kingdom of God has come near and they are evidence of what this kingdom looks like. When God is king, broken, mangled bodies would be made whole and strong. When God is king, people with various skin diseases who were ritually but also socially unclean and cast out, they would be made clean and restored to community and to relationship. When God is king, those who were harassed and oppressed by spiritual forces of the devil would be delivered. When God is king, those who were crushed by false religious burdens, weighing them down, would be set free. But that was just the beginning. It gets even better as the gospel unfolds. When God is king, those who are sinful who had offended the holy God, instead of immediately being judged and condemned, are offered pardon and forgiveness based on nothing they had done, but as a gift. And then they're welcomed back into this righteous, justified standing with God and given this welcome, warm welcome into the family of God where they can call the holy God now, Father, our Father, my Father. If you didn't think you were sinful... That last part wouldn't be very good news. But if you understood yourself to be sinful, to be spiritually impoverished, you would be flocking to Jesus. And that's exactly what happened. The sinners, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, they felt the good news before they even understood it and so they came in droves to Jesus and they offended all sorts of people because why would a holy person associate with this? Well, that's the kind of king that God was coming as Jesus. Jesus. But perhaps the greatest single miracle of the kingdom was when death was overturned. Jesus demonstrated this in his own ministry in Galilee when he raised the dead, but all of this pointed forward to his own glorious resurrection. You see, friends, when God is king, death is abolished. Well, in order to do the ministry of Jesus... To carry out his call to the whole world, we need the grace of having our imaginations captured by this kingdom that he announced and that he embodied. Why do I say imaginations captured? I could just say we need to believe in, we need to have faith in, but I want to use this word imagination. I think it's really getting at the same idea because I want our minds and our hearts to be captured with all that is possible when the kingdom of God breaks in. And with the kingdom of God, there is nothing that is impossible. Everything is possible. If death is overturned in this kingdom, what else is too hard for God? Our imaginations must be captured with that. Our hearts need to be saturated with that reality, our souls full of faith. So that we can go into our churches... We can go into our neighborhoods, we can go into the far reaches of the world and imagine what would happen if the kingdom of God broke into this place. What would happen if Jesus was king in a church, in a marriage, in a family, in a city? What would begin to change? What would it look like? It is this sanctified imagination, if you want to call it that, captured by the kingdom that sends people into mission for those who have served overseas why did you go in the first place why did you accept that call was it not in part because you imagined what god could do if he got a hold of a certain group of people with his gospel in some way he would use you to play a part See the moment we lose our imagination of the kingdom of God and all its possibilities that's the moment we lose our fuel for mission and ministry. So that's the first grace that we need to continue to be sustained and is this imagination captured by the kingdom of God. But second we also need the grace of hearts filled with compassion. Matthew 9 verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus was driven by the kingdom of God, but there was something else that drove his mission, and it was compassion. He felt deeply for people who were helpless and harassed. The Greek word for compassion is a very visceral word, refers to something deep in your gut, to be moved in your inward parts. Yes, Jesus knew that people were sinners. Yes, he, he knew that they had made bad decisions and he was they deserve judgment, they deserve condemnation, all those theological things. Jesus knew that, but that's not what drove his ministry. It was compassion for people in pain that motivated his ministry. And he would go on to teach them why they were in pain and how sin played a role in that and how they needed to leave that lifestyle. But his mission was one of compassion and mercy. And that wasn't anything new. We sometimes falsely characterize the God of the Old Testament as wrathful and vengeful. He certainly does have a holiness that produces that kind of wrath. But that's not essential as much as his compassionate nature. As we see this in Exodus 34, Moses wants to know more about God. He he says, show me your glory. He wants to see God in his holiness revealed. And, And what does the Lord do? He reveals his name, the Lord, the Lord. And he says, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Compassion, mercy, that's essential to God's character. So Jesus, as his son bringing the kingdom, is just bringing what God himself is like. He's showing us what the holy God is like. He's a God that is full of compassion. Well, to answer Jesus' call into mission and ministry, we too need those hearts filled with compassion. We need to become bleeding heart, not liberals or conservatives, but hearts that truly are moved and touched and broken over the state of people that we see. Think about it. What what motivates us to do a good act? I think a lot of the times it's guilt. We know that we should be doing certain types of works, feeding the poor, evangelizing the lost, and so we're moved by guilt and conviction to do those things. I don't want to throw guilt and conviction out. I think they're a gift from God. Our consciences are a gift from God. If we're not doing something we're meant to be doing, then guilt and conviction is a gift. It says, hey, you're on the wrong track. You need to get on the right track. But guilt is not a long term motivator. It's not going to sustain you year after year in mission and ministry. It's not going to give you what you need to lay your life down in sacrificial love. We need a better motivation. We need the grace of hearts filled with compassion to feel deeply in our guts the lostness, the brokenness, the oppression in the world. We see this in Philippians chapter 3. The apostle Paul is talking about his ministry. And he says, For as I have often told you and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Are we moved by the fact that there are people who don't recognize Jesus as King? How broken that is? How lost that is? I know my heart gets dull to that. And we need to pray for the grace that we can continually be moved by by someone who doesn't know Jesus, by someone who is impoverished, by someone who is in some state of harassed and helpless. It's a local church, King of Kings, some years ago. Um, we wanted to understand better what was going on in our city and how God might move us to meet some needs. We did this curriculum that had been put out by someone locally um, called Get Off Our Donkey. Uh, that spells good, G-O-O-D, comes from the Good Samaritan. Also, Get Off Our Donkey, you can substitute another word for donkey and figure out maybe where they were going with that. Um, but we learned about seven different issues in Charlotte, human trafficking, human trafficking, High school dropouts, the homeless, the elderly, abortion, refugees, and prisoners. There's a lot of need in Charlotte. Some needs that you don't even necessarily think are happening in Charlotte are. There's also a lot of people that are ministering to those needs. And each video curriculum would, would share a part of that, of how Christians were helping So we went through that, we knew we were a small church, we have our limitations, but we wanted to start somewhere, do something together, and so we we believe God led us to get involved in an elementary school, caring for the school, uh, investing a little bit financially, and particularly caring for the students. We believed, still do believe, that that simple act could have a major impact on some of these big ticket items down the road. Perhaps if we could reach a second or a third grader, and as the result of our investment, maybe they could prevent things like going to prison, like being victims of sex trafficking, like dropping out of high school or becoming homeless or choosing into a lifestyle of abortion. And so for the past few years, we've been involved in Lansdowne Elementary. Lansdowne is just off Providence Road. It's it's not the worst school in CMS. In fact, it's a very good school, But it has needs, and it has students that are falling behind, and it has uh, lots of places where we can help, and it's right in our own backyard. So we said, well, let's just start there. So we help at Lansdowne because it's a morally good thing to do, right? But the deeper motivation that I want us to have as a church is compassion, that we would feel deeply for people who have a need, and that would move us to act. Also, in the past few years, uh, we were made aware of some statistics about the spiritual state of Charlotte that very much surprised me. 93% of people claim to be Christians. That's how they self-identify in our city. That's a lot, 93%. But less than 50% have an active, strong engagement in a local church. And then of those 50%, less than that, have an orthodox or a biblical view of God. I don't care how people present themselves. I can tell you that a lot of people in Charlotte are helpless and harassed. Why? Exactly what Jesus saw. They are sheep without a shepherd. Maybe they have a personal relationship with Jesus, but they're not in a church. They're not growing and thriving in a local church. That's like saying, well, I'm married, but I don't live with my wife, and I don't really want to have anything to do with her. Well, that does happen to people. But that's not the state that we want it to be, right? There's something wrong with that relationship when that's the case. We're moved by that. We're hurt for the people who believe in God, maybe, but they don't have that connection to Christ and to his body as a way to grow up. And then here we are at this great local church. We want to offer that to people. We want to connect them, if not here, somewhere. We don't want anyone to walk alone without Jesus, without his body, without word and sacrament, without spirit-filled worship and loving fellowship. And we don't have a program for that right now. You want to know what our program is? You're our program. I'm our program. Our relationships, our networks, the people that you live next to and go to the grocery store with and work with, that's our program, friends. All of us are interacting with people all the time. Who maybe have a church home, maybe don't, maybe know God, but they are disconnected from Christ. How are we going to help them? Well, it starts with the grace of compassion. So try this and give you a little challenge. Just ask God to give you compassion for someone in your life who you believe is disconnected from Christ and his church. Ask for it and see what the Holy Spirit will do. I think that he might give you a special compassion for someone and then look for ways to connect with them, engage them, and in time, bring them to church, to a pastorate, to a men's or women's ministry event. The third grace that we need is to see the Lord and his harvest. Verse 37 and 38, Jesus says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is something that's really surprising to me. The Lord Jesus looks out on the world and he sees abundance and scarcity, right? Abundance and scarcity. We do the same, right? We look out in the world in all sorts of ways and we see abundance and scarcity. But he sees the opposite of what I think we are most likely to see. We are most likely to see, especially here in the American South, that there is an abundance of laborers, churches, people on mission, but hardly anything to harvest. Seems like everyone's already a Christian, right? Ninety-three percent people self-identify. Many people don't seem interested in faith. Maybe you've had little conversations. You kind of see spiritually. Are they are they going to be interested, and they're not? And meanwhile, we do have tons and tons of churches, and we're planting churches on top of churches here in Charlotte. So it can easily seem like there's an abundance of labor, but a scarcity of something to harvest. But that's not the way the Lord sees it. The opposite is true. The abundance is the harvest. The scarcity is the laborers. Now, I thought about that. Would that only apply to his time? Maybe that particular moment in Israel and every other time is the opposite. No, I don't think so. I think this is a text for every generation, that he looks at Charlotte, that he looks at whatever your mission field is, and he sees an abundant harvest, but not enough laborers. To do ministry in Jesus' name, we need to see the world the way he sees the world. We might not immediately have people lining up at our door, asking us about faith, begging us to bring, on, bring them to church. Would that that happen? But I still believe that if we see the world through his eyes, we will see the harvest. We will see that there are hearts ripe for the kingdom. And the biggest thing that we'll see, and I think this is what, how Jesus understood the harvest in this text, is that we will see helpless and harassed people Everywhere. When you strip away sort of what people present, you will see helpless and harassed people need a shepherd. So we need to see the harvest the way he sees it. We also need to see him as the Lord of the harvest. The mission is not up to us. It's not our field. It's not our world. It's not our harvest. It's God's field, God's world, God's harvest. At best, we are day laborers. We come out. Tells us what to do. We go home every night and we sleep, but he never sleeps. He does not slumber. We go out, we plant, we water, but who gives the growth? God gives the growth. He is sovereign in the whole process. He cares more about it than we do. He will accomplish his purpose. It's not up to us. He's got work for us to do, but he's in charge. It's good because it means we can sleep at night. Means we can take Sabbath, means that we don't have to control every little thing. We can trust the Holy Spirit to do His work. That'll keep us from burning out. It'll also keep us from believing in our own self importance. He is the Lord of the harvest. Fourth and final grace that we need is to be moved in our souls to pray for laborers. Again, I think it's interesting that He doesn't tell us to pray for a harvest. He tells us to pray for laborers. That's the scarcity. That's where the need is. That's where the prayer starts. doesn't mean that we stop praying for people that we know who are lost, that they would see Jesus. That's still a good thing to do. But I just wonder if we flipped it around a little bit and spent more energy and time praying for laborers, what would happen? The word pray there, it's an urgent word. It really can be translated to beg We want to plead, we want to beg with God, please send laborers into your harvest. I don't know why God wants to use our prayers in that way, but he does. That's the command of this text. It goes through all these different things and it says, pray. That's the conclusion of chapter 9. Now in chapter 10 of Matthew, we see that the disciples are the answer to their own prayer. They are called to be his apostles. They are sent out on this short-term mission. And that will often be the case with us. We will be the answer. We will be the laborers. Sometimes it's not, but a lot of times it will be. But before we rush out into the harvest, we need prayer. Because there we submit ourselves to the Lord of the harvest. There our imaginations are recaptured by the kingdom. There compassion is cultivated in our hearts again. A lot of times we come to God in prayer with a need, and He may grant the need, but He always has a bigger mind, a big, bigger goal in mind for prayer to conform ourselves into His image and to cultivate this sense of dependence. And we need that dependence right from the get go, not in the beginning of the mission, but all the way throughout. Give us grace, O Lord to answer readily the call of our Savior Jesus Christ and proclaim to all people the good news of His salvation, that the whole world, Charlotte, North Carolina, the ends of the earth, may perceive the glory of His marvelous works. As disciples, we are not called just to watch Jesus do ministry. We are not called just to receive His ministry in ourselves. We are called to join Him to go out in his power, in his name, and do his ministry. But we need a lot of grace in order to do that. The grace of that imagination captured by the kingdom of God and its possibilities. The grace of a heart filled and moved by compassion. The grace of seeing the Lord and his sovereignty over the harvest. And the grace of a soul moved to pray for laborers. So let's start right now, why don't we? And let's pray. Father, we look out on your harvest. We see you as the Lord. And on this day, we pray for laborers. Or we pray for laborers in the ministries of this local church, King of Kings. She would raise up gifts and leaders, people passionate and excited to do the work you've called them to do in and through this church. Lord, we pray for laborers in Lansdowne. Thank you for the connection we have there. Lord, we pray for laborers across this city. You've scattered us in many different jobs and neighborhoods and schools and other workplaces. Lord, we also look beyond the city, beyond the state, beyond this country, to the far reaches of the planet. You know the places, and I just invite you all to bring to mind a place that's on your heart, maybe a far-off country. We pray for laborers for those places. We pray for those who are already laboring but are tired and discouraged. Would you renew their imagination in the kingdom and fill their hearts with compassion again? Help them rest in the sovereignty of your lordship. And finally, Lord, we offer ourselves as an answer to our prayer. We want to be laborers, not specialists but just laborers who go out and serve as you call us to serve. And so we ask for these graces this morning, that you would answer them and apply them to us in the way that seems best to you. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.